Before we open our Bibles, uh, let's recall what we learned about last week. We learned about a key to the Christian life, which is to cultivate hope. Uh, we talked about that quite a bit last week. We're going to talk about it a little bit more today as we get into this passage. We need to cultivate hope in our lives because we're going to need to learn some interesting lessons, some challenging lessons along the way as we journey through this life. We, we learn, we need to learn to view trials the way God tells us in his word to view them and not how we're tempted to view them in the flesh. You see, we're tempted to view the difficult things that happen in our lives. We're tempted, I'm not saying this is true, we're tempted to view difficulties in our lives as punishment by God. When things are not going well, we may conclude that God doesn't love us. Let me just assure you today, this is not Scott speaking, this is the word of God, that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you believe that the difficult things of life or the trials of life are punishment from God or that God doesn't love you, you're 100% wrong. You're incorrect. You're an error. The Bible tells us that as followers of Jesus Christ, our sins are completely forgiven, that God's wrath against us has been fully quenched. Amen? It's done. It's finished. God's wrath against us is over. However, our lives belong to him now, and our sin remains until we die. And so if he chooses to refine our faith through a trial, or even to refine the faith of another through a trial that, that he puts us through in his sovereign plan, we can endure, and we can learn through the trial, knowing that he only has good for us in mind. Romans 8.28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's an incredibly, incredibly encouraging passage of Scripture when things are going well. And it's, an, it's a terribly difficult passage of Scripture to get through when things are going not so well, or even they're hard, or even they're devastatingly hard. Uh, that's a challenging, Romans 8.28 is a challenging passage of Scripture. But in order to get through this life, we have to cultivate hope. I, I mentioned it last week. I gave you an assignment to do last week. I pray that you did it. If you haven't done it yet, you, maybe you will after today. In today's passage, we're going to receive further instructions in our field manual for the Christian life. That's what I think Peter is giving us here in 1 Peter. He's giving us a field manual for the Christian life, so to speak. It's, it's my words. But as I look at it, I'm like, man, this stuff is really, really good. This, this is stuff that we need to get through this life. And today in our passage, Peter is going to do something very interesting to grab our attention. Now, disclaimer, disclaimer. Maybe I have vacation brain. It could be, you know. Uh, because I've spent the last week on vacation at family camp. And by the way, if you've not gone to Life Action Family Camp, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, if you want information on that, see me. But uh, I don't, I'm not, I don't get a paid endorsement for saying this. <laughs> uh, I don't even get a discount, I don't think, for saying this. Wish I did. But, uh, but you should go to family camp, Life Action Family Camp. Anyway, 
We're gonna cover a big chunk of scripture today. But the reason that we're gonna do that is, is uh, because I think many pastors and many Bible teachers will, will break this big section into smaller sections and will preach it individually. But I think if, you, if we do that this morning, we're gonna miss something amazing that Peter is gonna do in this text. And, and, and we would go past it not seeing the full panoramic view of what he's trying to do. So I'm gonna take an obscenely large chunk of text and, and try to get through it, but don't worry. Uh, I only went like two or three minutes over in the first service, so we should be fine. And I'm gonna start in a very unorthodox way, which is probably not gonna make any sense at first. I'm not gonna start in the book of Peter. We're gonna start in the book of Exodus. And I'm gonna give you, uh, the, well, I'm gonna give you the big question first, but you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Uh, the big question is, how does Peter help us mentally and spiritually prepare for this life? How does Peter help us to mentally and spiritually prepare for life? And I'm gonna start not in First Peter this morning, but with a rumination. You know, I'm gonna, we're gonna chew over something for a few minutes. We're gonna think about something deeply for a few minutes a rumination on the exodus from Egypt, and then we're gonna turn our attention quickly to 1 Peter chapter one and a little bit in chapter two. Just some history here. You know, if you know the Bible, you know that Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. The first book of the Bible is all about how God created everything. That's Genesis one and two. The third chapter of the Bible tells us how sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience to God's one command that they are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They ate of that tree, they disobeyed God, and sin entered their lives, entered the world, and we've been living in it ever since. It's been a cataclysmic thing that happened. It's affected, it, and it, it affects in an ongoing way our lives, our minds, uh, everything about this life is affected and impacted in some way by sin. Just think about it. Why do you lock your door? Sin. Why do we wear clothing? Sin. Why do we wear clothing in June? Sin. Why do we wear clothing, including a jacket, in a room that doesn't have air conditioning? Sin. <laughs> Seriously, stuff wears out and breaks. Sin. It, it affects us all. Why is the world such a mess today? Sin. So the first book of the Bible tells us how sin entered the world and it got so bad on the earth that God decided to destroy the earth with a, with a flood and he only saved one family, Noah and his family. He saved them by having them build an ark and they got on that ark with a whole bunch of animals and they survived the flood and then they were commanded by God to begin to repopulate the earth, which they did. And after, after many years and the earth was repopulated, God decided to work with one guy, Abram, later named Abraham. And he, he promised Abraham three things. He said, get up and go to a land that I'll show you. So he promised him a land. He promised him uh, to a, a great nation, right? Uh, to become a great nation. He promised him seed. You know, uh, his family line would perpetuate and grow and become numerous on the earth. And he promised him a blessing. He said, uh, you can look back at Genesis 12, right? Uh, whoever blesses you, all bless. Whoever curses you, all curse. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be earth will be blessed. He promised him a land, a seed, and a blessing. God did. Promises to Abraham. And the rest of the book of Genesis really is the adventures of, the, of Abraham and his descendants. 
Abraham and his wife Sarah had Isaac at an age when they were physically unable to do so. They were very up there in age and, and God gave them a son, Isaac. And then later Jacob came along, a descendant of Isaac. And Jacob later would be renamed Israel. And uh, at, the, at the, the very last chapters in the book of Exodus or book of Genesis, um, we read about how there was a famine in the land where they were living. And so God uh, took one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, and through some sinful activities of his brothers, put him in Egypt. And he rose in the ranks in Egypt until uh, he eventually interpreted one of Pharaoh, the king's dreams, and he elevated him to second command. And he put together this program where they would store up grain for years during the times of plenty in preparation for what he foresaw through Pharaoh's dream as some times of famine that were coming. And that's exactly what happened. And so here's Joseph, one of Jacob, later named Israel's sons, in Egypt, and he's second in command and he's got all this food. And so the family sojourns to Egypt to get food and eventually Joseph reveals who he is. And, and when we leave the book of Genesis, the house of Israel, the house of Jacob is now in Egypt, and they're dwelling there among the Egyptians. They won't intermarry with the Egyptians. Better yet, more like, more accurate, the Egyptians will not intermarry with them. And they're, they're there, and they're growing into a great nation. And when we open in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, things are getting interesting because the people of Israel have grown into a great multitude, and there's been a changeover in leadership in, in Egypt, and the the Pharaoh who was there and was uh, soft-hearted to the Israelite people is no longer there. He's dead and there's, there's a new king, a new Pharaoh, and he sees now the Israelite people as a threat, puts them into slavery and begins to do all kinds of population control measures and things, brutal things to the people to hold them back and to oppress them. And so... Early in the book of Exodus, we see this. The Israelites are enslaved and crying out to God. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 and 25, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So here they are, they're enslaved in Egypt and they cried out to God. Secondly, what we see in, in the Exodus account is that God allowed Moses and Aaron. So God raised up this man named Moses to lead his people out of slavery, to lead them out of Egypt and back to the promised land, the land that God had promised Abraham, to lead them out so that they might go and worship him. And so God allowed Moses and Aaron to, provide, to perform signs and wonders in front of Pharaoh to prove that they were from God. In one episode, they took a stick, right, a staff, and they threw it on the ground, and it turned into a snake. And then uh, later, uh, they picked up the snake, Aaron picked up the snake, and it turned back into a staff. <clears throat> Incidentally, my, my dad... I saw my dad uh, while I was on vacation because he lives near the camp and my dad had an interesting thing happen to him with snakes. Uh, my dad is like Indiana Jones. He hates snakes. If you've ever seen the Indiana Jones movie, Indiana Jones is this tough guy, swashbuckling, swashbuckling guy, but he hates snakes. 
Anyway, my dad was mowing the grass. He had just cleaned some snakes out of the mower. He, we live on a farm, or my, my parents live on a farm. He had just cleaned some snakes out of the riding lawnmower, took it apart, and there was a snake in there. He, he pulled it out and everything because he's tough. And, uh, and then the snake scurried away, and then dad put the mower back together and started mowing the grass. And as he's mowing the grass, this snake comes up over his shoulder. I said, Dad, it's like Indiana Jones and the mower of doom. Anyway, the point is, some, I don't know how the snake got back in the morning. Anyway, I don't know why that has to do anything with this. But anyway, that's the story my dad told me. Uh, uh, so, my, so they were able to call down plagues, right? God gave them the ability to turn the river to blood and to call down plagues. But the problem was is that Pharaoh would bring forth magicians and they could do similar things. The goal, again, was to get Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go, go, go out of slavery and go back to the promised land to worship him. Third, we see that, and remember these things. These are, these are, you know, number one, number two, number three in my rumination here. And number three, God allowed the blood of a lamb to provide rescue. When, when all of the signs and wonders that they did, all of the plagues that they brought failed to, uh, to soften Pharaoh's heart so that he would let the people of Israel go, God gave them this command. And you might want to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. You can have it open while I'm recounting it, just to bring it to your memory. In Exodus chapter 12, God told the people of Israel what to do, to, to slaughter a lamb, a, a spotless lamb, and to smear its blood on the doorposts and the lintel. And God would send his angel into the land of Egypt and whenever that angel saw the blood of that perfect lamb, the angel would pass over that home. But for the, the house, that that blood was not there, the angel would kill the firstborn. It's called the Passover. It's a terrible situation. And God did exactly what he said he would do, and, and many in Egypt died that night, including those in some in Pharaoh's own household, the firstborn, died. And so this, this was the impetus. This was the thing that allowed uh, Pharaoh to let the people go, to let the people go and, and to leave. And, and they wanted him to leave, like, get out of here, go quickly. And so uh, not only that, but after the Passover, the Israelites had to tie up their robes. You know, they You've seen the pictures, right? The, the artist's renderings anyway of the of people that had long flowing robes and in order for them to leave quickly and not get those things bound up in, or t tangled up in their legs, maybe they had to take them up and tuck them in their belt and stuff so they could get out of there in haste. And we know that because when when uh, the the Passover meal was instituted to remember annually this event in the life of Israel, they were told to wear a belt so that they could do that. They could... They could take up their garments and tuck them in. They had to leave Egypt in haste. And God also allowed them, as they were leaving, they asked the Egyptians for gold and silver. And, and for reasons that are inexplicable, they, they gave them, get, here, take our gold, take our silver, get out of here. And the Bible tells us that they plundered the Egyptians. But then later on, after receiving all that gold and silver, that, that gold and silver became a snare to them 
Later, we, we read the account of how they went out into the wilderness and when Moses was up receiving the law, they, they fashioned a golden calf and began to worship it. So again, just keep these, I want you to hold these things in your mind as we, as we move forward here. Moses did give them the law. He gave them the law through Moses. We read about that in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and, and other places, even in some in um, Exodus, right? God gave them the law through Moses and told them in Leviticus 19.2 that they are to be holy because God is holy. They are to be holy as God is holy. What's holy mean? We talk about it a lot. We sing about it a lot. Holy, holy, holy. It means set apart. God is altogether different. He's set apart. He's not like us. Study your world religions and you'll find a quid pro quo in almost all of them, meaning the, the, the divine being, the, the whatever, the whoever this false God is says, you do for me and I'll do for you. You do for me and I'll do for you. Our God is not like that. Our God is altogether different. Our God says, I'm gonna send my son to die for your sin, period. He's altogether different. And so his expectation of the Israelites is that they would be altogether different. What does that look like? Well, it looks like that they're, gonna, they're going to use their lives to honor God. How? By following his law. We'll talk more about that as we go. We also see in, in the book of Exodus that, that God gave them food for the journey. God did not spit them out of Egypt into the wilderness to die. He gave them manna from heaven, right? He gave them this food to eat. It wasn't, the, wasn't steak and mashed potatoes, right? But it sustained them through their time. Some complained about it. Later, God sent quail, gave them some meat to eat. But do you remember uh, Do you remember what they were supposed to do with the manna? They were supposed to collect how much per day? One day's worth, right? What if they collected two days worth in one day? What would happen? What? It would rot, right? It would rot, it would smell, it would get worms. Uh, but they could collect two days worth on the day before the Sabbath. Interesting. And somehow that would, that would hold, that would preserve, even though they didn't have Tupperware yet. I don't know how that... God was in control, right? So anyway, God gave them food for the journey. As they traveled, a rebellion sprung up. This is the Koraz Rebellion, right? Uh, uh, a whole bunch of people refused to listen to the word of God through Moses and instead chose their own way. They weren't content with God's leadership, God's system, God's structure. They wanted to do it their way. And I don't know if you remember what happened to Korah and those that were on his side. Read number 16, let the fear strike you. <laughs> it was not a pretty sight what happened to them. Something to do with the earth opening and swallowing them up and it was bad. Anyway. Okay, a couple more things. The Israelites at God's command built a place for God's presence to reside. They, they took this gold and this silver that they collected from the Egyptians and they fashioned it into things, items, that was at first a tabernacle. It was, it was a tent-like structure. It had an outer perimeter. Inside the outer perimeter, it had a, an altar for burning uh, uh, sacrifices. It had a laver 
for uh, the priests to wash and become ceremonially clean. And then it had a tent inside that outer structure, that outer perimeter. And that tent had a holy place and a holy of holies where the, uh, but the Ark of the Covenant would be. And, and they, they, uh, God's presence would, when they, when they put that thing up, God's presence would reside there and the people would encamp all around it. The people of Israel would encamp in their tribes all around it. The tabernacle. Later, as they settled the promised land, they went into the land of Canaan and settled there. They built a permanent temple made out of stones in Jerusalem. The remnants of that temple are still existent in Jerusalem today. The temple no longer stands, but the temple mount is still there, the location where the temple once stood. Last thing. God told the Israelites that they would be to him a kingdom of priests on the earth. Exodus 19, one through six. What does that mean? Again, uh, what I alluded to earlier. As they followed God's law, as they conducted themselves, as they dressed themselves the way God told them to dress, as they conducted themselves the way God told them to conduct themselves, they would be representing God to all of the nations of the earth around them. A kingdom of priests representing God to all of the earth, all of the nations of the earth around them. If they were, if, if a nation, if a, if a people group were to come to them and say, what is God like? They could tell them. They could give them the law. They could tell of all God's wonderful deeds of how he parted the Red Sea and, and vanquished Pharaoh's army and, and he sent the plagues and the Passover. He, they could tell the nations of what this God was like. They were to be a kingdom of priests. Okay, hold all that in your mind <laughs> and turn to First Peter chapter one. And I'm gonna go quickly. I'm not gonna get in depth on this. Again, many, many, there's much to learn here, much more than I'm gonna share with you this morning. But I think that I'm gonna show you something this morning that once you see it, you will be unable to not, to unsee it. You, you'll, you'll always look at this passage and you'll see something amazing uh, that I'm sharing with you this morning. So we're gonna read through 1 Peter chapter one, and I'm just gonna take it a couple of verses at a time. But before I do that, God in the Old Testament in the Exodus raised up Moses. And the New Testament tells us that a better Moses has come. Hebrews 3 Three and four says this, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that a new and greater Moses has come, and that person is Jesus Christ. So we're gonna read through 1 Peter a little bit at a time, starting in chapter one, verse 13, we're gonna read through Peter a little bit at a time and I'm gonna take you back to my rumination and see if we find any parallels there. First Peter 1.13, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Stop right there. I have in my possession a large print ESV Bible up here on the pulpit and my large print ESV Bible has a footnote after the word action. Therefore, preparing your mind for action. Does anybody else have that footnote? Anyone, anyone? Okay, lots of you. 
And my footnote says that the Greek says, girding up the loins of your mind. That's a funny way to say what our English translators have said, prepare your minds for action. But do you see what Peter is doing here? He's connecting what he's saying here to the Exodus. He's saying, just like those people in the Old Testament times had to take up their flowing robes and tuck them in their belt and prepare for action, we have to prepare our minds for action. We have to gird up the loins of our mind. Prepare your mind for action and be sober-minded. How do you do that? You set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There it is again. In order for us, this field manual that Peter is giving us, in order for us to be able to get through this life as the exiles and the sojourners that we are, we have to prepare our minds for action. We have to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I challenged you last week Think of, a, think of passages of Scripture or collect passages of Scripture that you can read on a, on a daily basis or maybe one a day or something to, to fill your mind with hope. Here's one, Ephesians chapter 2, right? 1 through 10. That passage will fill your mind with hope. There's others, many others. Collect them. Write them down. Uh, read one a day. Uh, perhaps there's some music, some songs, that, worship songs that you like to listen to that fill your mind with the hope that is to come. Listen to those. Make those part of your daily routine, your daily time with the Lord. Set your hope fully. Cultivate hope. Let me just give you a verse that may help with that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But it, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. I don't know what you consider to be the best possible thing that could happen to you today. My daughter, my daughter, my youngest child followed the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism today. You know what? I can go to sleep. It's been a good day, right? Maybe for you, it's uh, the best day you could imagine. I don't know. It's something like Purdue is beating Ohio State for three and a half quarters, and at the last minute in the, in the fourth quarter, they go ahead for victory. Undefeated season. Maybe, maybe that's what you consider to be the greatest thing that could happen. But what God's word says is whatever you can conjure in your mind as what would be the greatest thing that could happen to you, the greatest thing that you could see, the most wonderful music that you could hear, whatever you could imagine, that doesn't even come close to what God has prepared for those who love him. Doesn't that fill your mind with hope? It does me. Look at verses 14 through 16. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. He goes on, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So the first one, this gird up the loins of your mind, that takes us to our rumination number four, right? But this one, uh, chapter one, verses 14 through 16, that takes us to rumination number six, right? Where God told the people of Israel to be holy as he is holy. God is altogether different. 
We are to be altogether different. I was listening to a podcast while I was on vacation and the guy on the podcast was not a Christian, but he said, he said, I can predict what most people are going to do with 90% accuracy by asking myself two questions. I'm gonna put myself in their shoes. I'll imagine myself in their shoes and I'll ask myself these questions. What would a selfish person do? What would a greedy person do? And I imagine that's the thing that they're going to do and I'm right 90% of the time. What would a selfish person do? What would a greedy person do? And I'm right 90% of the time. Our God, though he is all powerful, sacrificed his only son to love us. He's altogether different. He's holy. We as his people are not to be bound by selfishness and greed. We are to take these lives that God has given us and to love others with them sacrificially. We are to be altogether different. We are to be set apart. We are to be holy. What else do we see? Chapter one, verses 17 to 19. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deed, deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout your time, the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that lamb, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. That takes us back to our rumination, number three and number five, where we learned about the fact that the Israelites had to take the blood of a spotless lamb and, and slather it to, to, to put it on the doorposts and the lentils to, so that the Passover lamb would not take their firstborn. They were rescued through that blood. And we understand that we were saved, not by our deeds, not by our gold and silver, but because of the precious blood of the perfect spotless lamb of God, Jesus Christ. It also reminds us about rumination number five, that we are not to trust in gold or silver. Remember, remember the count of the Exodus. The, the, the people said, the people of Israel, as they were leaving Egypt, they said, give us your gold and silver. And the Egyptians said, yes, take it. Just get out of here. Take our gold, take our silver, get out of here. And later God would used that gold and silver to construct his tabernacle, his temple, to be, they were to be stewards of this material, to, to worship God with this material. And, he, and later on, instead, it became a snare to them as they worshiped the golden calf before they built the tabernacle and the temple. And folks, I just wonder today, as, as, as we navigate this life, as we sojourn through this life together, God has put, we live in America. This is the land of plenty, Right? And if, if we navigate through this life, God has placed us as stewards over the possessions that he's given us. We're stewards of God's property and we are to use God's, his, his gold, his silver, so to speak, his possessions to, to, whip, uh, to worship him with our lives and, and to be careful not to let the things that God has placed us as stewards over to become a snare to us. It's very easy to do. To, to allow the, the gold and silver, the possessions of this world to get us sidetracked into something other than worshiping the Lord. 
Bible's full of exhortations about that. Moving on, verses 20 and 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This takes us to rumination number two, right? God sent Aaron and Moses to Pharaoh, performing signs and wonders, turning rivers to blood, uh, turning staffs into snakes, and then back again, uh, bringing plagues to prove that they were God's men. Jesus came into this world. Jesus came into this world, and you know what he did. Walked on water, uh, performed signs and wonders, healed the sick, brought forth Lazarus from the grave, right? And he himself died on the cross and three days later rose again and then ascended to be with God in heaven. He ascended to be with God in glory. Signs and wonders remind us of Jesus' miracles and his resurrection. Verses 22 to 25. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This brings to mind rumination number eight. The people of Korah's rebellion refused to listen to God's word and they wanted to do things their own way and that did not end well for them. What does that mean to us? That we, as Peter writes, we are to, how are we to conduct ourselves? According to God's word, recognizing that this flesh is here today and gone tomorrow. It's like the grass. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. But what abides forever? The word of the Lord. We have to understand this. We have to decide what, how, what we're going to listen to, what we're going to obey, where we're going to put our hope and our faith in this world, in the things that are passing away or in the eternal word of God. Chapter two, verses one through three. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And here it brings my mind to rumination number seven about God did not send his people, Israel, out into the wilderness, out of Egypt to starve to death and die. He fed them. He fed them manna from heaven. He fed them quail. He gave them what they needed to survive. We live in a land that physical food is plentiful. And what we need is what Peter reminds us of, right? Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Do you long, do you long for the word of God, to, to read it, to learn it, to apply it? Is it something that you desire on a daily basis? Or is this, is this merely, this which should be our life, it should be something that we cherish, something that we learn, something that we grow through 
Does it sit and collect dust on a shelf? If you need help learning the word of God, uh, I have office hours here at the church. I don't know if you're aware of this. Some people in this body think that I work one hour a week, maybe two on Sunday morning. But no, I work eight to five, Monday through Thursday. And just call me uh, and, and we'll, I'll help you learn how to study God's word. That's why I'm here. Okay, chapter two, verse four through eight. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So to the honor, so the honor is for, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder has rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. What's Peter saying here? Well, he points back, I believe, to rumination number nine, that God's people Israel back in the Old Testament were to build themselves a tabernacle for God's presence to come and dwell. Later, they built a temple made of, of stones for God's presence to come and to dwell with the people. But if you, if you know your Bible, if you've read your Bible, you know this, and Peter is pointing us to it, that there is no temple anymore on the earth. That God, the, God has decided to take up residence in the lives of the followers of Jesus Christ in the form of God, the Holy Spirit. And so what is Peter saying here? There is a temple. It's a living temple. He calls us living stones. We are like living stones. We are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. What is the new temple? The church. Except it's not made out of tent material. It's not made out of gold and silver. And it's not made out of stones. It's made out of you and I. Living stones and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our lives so that wherever we go on this earth, the presence of God enters into that area. Wherever we go, we carry the Holy Spirit with us and that is made manifest in how we speak and how we treat others and how we behave. Should be. That is the new temple, the church. These things Peter's telling us to encourage us. Then one more, chapter, well, a couple more. In chapter, nine, uh, chapter two, verses nine and 10, he goes on to say, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you are not a people, can we just admit, can we just admit that the church, even this church, is a diversity of people? We come from different walks of life, different political opinions and backgrounds, different likes and dislikes. We're, 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 but what connects us together? Once you were not a people, you're just a bunch of in, individuals. But now you are God's people. What's, what's the thing that we have in common? Our common faith in Jesus Christ and the desire to walk, to live obedient to his word. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What does this call to mind? 
Rumination number 10. God called Israel a royal priesthood or a, a, a kingdom of priests. And today, who is the, the priesthood? The church. The church, what does that mean? It means what I said in the last point, which is when we go somewhere, when we go somewhere, when we come into contact with human beings that are not followers of Jesus Christ, we are to represent God to them. We are to represent God to each other. In the way we use our language, the way we use our hands and feet, our resources, everything about his representatives on the God. We are his representatives on the earth. This is, this is the system that God has chosen to help other people know who he is through our lives. And then the last section, which is not tied to any of the ruminations, but gets us ready for next week, is this, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. There's that Exodus language again. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh in which you in which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that then when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter is getting us ready for some practical things that he's, we're gonna slow down next week. We're gonna take a smaller chunk of scripture. We're gonna go through it. And Peter is gonna start to see how do we conduct ourselves in public? How do we conduct ourselves within the family? How do we conduct ourselves in our employer-employee relationships on the earth as his representatives, God's representatives on the earth. He's gonna launch into that practical teaching beginning in the next passage. So, what I've tried to do here is to help you see that what I think Peter is trying to accomplish here is that he's connecting, he's helping us think through in, a, in kind of a field manual format, how should we think about this life? And he draws so much out of the book of Exodus. He draws so much imagery and so much things out of the Israel's Exodus that it helps us to understand that we, this place that we call earth, this place that God has created, this is not our final destination. We are sojourners, we are exiles on our way to our future destination, to be with God. But while we're here, we have work to do to represent him on the earth. It's not always gonna be easy. In fact, it's gonna be so difficult at times that we're not gonna make it through unless we fix our hope firmly on the grace that is to come. Does that make sense? We have to, one of the disciplines of the Christian faith is we have to fix our hope firmly, completely on the grace that is to come. So the big question was, how does Peter help us to mentally and spiritually prepare for life? Here's how he does it. Peter overwhelms us with Exodus imagery to challenge us to prepare mentally and spiritually through the correct placement of our hope and also our obedience to God's word. We have to, we, we can envision ourselves as the Israelites wandering through the wilderness, except we're not wandering through the, the same wilderness. We're wandering through this life. And it is a wilderness out there. If you just check the news, it's a wilderness out there. We're wandering through this life and we have a job to do. And that is to represent God on our way to what he has finally prepared for us. 
All I can do is tell you that what I think Peter is getting at here is, is he's calling our attention to have an Exodus mindset, right? An Exodus mindset. We're on a journey through this life. This, this life, though, this, this planet, this time, Delaware, Ohio, this is not our final destination. We're on our way to God's promised land to be with him. Our job is to faithfully follow what God has said while remaining hopeful of what is to come. Faithfully follow what God has said while remaining hopeful of what is to come. Last thing I'm gonna share with you and I'll get some application. Don't you find it interesting? At least I do because I'm a nerd. Uh, Do you find it interesting that, at least me, this is just me, when I think of the Exodus, I think of just hundreds of thousands of people and they're just walking through the wilderness. Just a big, just train of people just walking through. And I know they stopped and they camped. And then they got up and they, they sojourned some more and they camped. And, but just, just a whole mass of people just walking. Do you find it interesting, like I do? Uh, I mean, this just hit me this week that in the New Testament, oftentimes when the writers of the New Testament talk about how we live, they talk about our walk on this earth. I find that fascinating. Watch how you walk, meaning in New Testament language, watch how you live on the the earth. Watch how you walk. I find that fascinating. We're on an exodus here, people. This is, we're exiles, we're sojourners. Our job is to represent Christ well. So here's a few application questions to wrestle with between maybe you and God. Firstly, what areas of your life point to the fact that you consider this your permanent home? What would you, what would God the Holy Spirit convict you of right now where you would say, yeah, I'm kind of treating this area of my life or, or multiple areas of my life as if this is it, as if this is my final home. I'm just going to make the best of it. I'm not really thinking about the future. Maybe God's challenging you to do something there. Second question would be this, what are you doing to stay mentally fit for the journey that we were on? I think I've told you this story before. I had this buddy, Dan, back in Indiana. And the greatest compliment that I ever heard Dan give anybody, and he only gave it out to a few people, was Dan would say, my my buddy Dan would say, yeah, I know Steve. Steve knows the Bible. I only heard him say that about a handful of people Dan was a guy who knew the Bible. And, and, and if, if Dan was convinced that somebody had a very firm grasp on God's word, he would say, oh yeah, I know Steve. I tell you what, Steve knows the Bible. Study this. This is our spiritual food. That our God, our gracious God, the one who sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, he's given us this as a tremendous gift. Know it. Live it. Finally, what are you doing to stay spiritually? What can you do to, to be spiritually fit for this journey? And here I, I can only point you back to the, the first verse that we studied in First Peter, which is to set your hope fully. Where is your hope? Is your hope in how much money you're going to have when you retire? Is your hope how well or not well, your kids are going to behave tomorrow. Where's your hope? 
The Bible tells us where to place it. If we're gonna successfully sojourn this world in a way that pleases the Lord. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to see this parallel that Peter has painted between the instruction that he gives us in this field manual called the first letter of Peter and the Exodus. Father, help us to adopt an Exodus mindset as we, as sojourns and exiles in this world, travel through it. We wanna represent you well, Father. We wanna love each other well, and we wanna love those that we come into contact with well. We wanna represent you well. So teach us to do that through your word in the midst of your people, convicted by and indwelled by your Holy Spirit. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.